Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And today, our topic is the new atheism. And I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I have with me uh, two professors of systematic theology, uh, uh, Glenn Kreider and Doug Blunt, who are going to help negotiate our way through the discussion of the new atheism and uh, thinking through both the claims and also the issue of tone and engagement as to how we um, have conversations in relationship to the new atheism and, and kind of what it's all about. So I'll start uh, with this question, and Doug, I'll start with you. Uh, it's called the new atheism. Now, atheism has been around for a little bit of time. So, uh, uh, so what makes the new atheism new in your judgment? Well, what characterizes uh, the newer atheist is they have an affinity to, uh, to Friedrich Nietzsche. Prior to Nietzsche, um, the atheistic attitude was typically one of regret. You know, the view was, well, there isn't a God and that's unfortunate, it would be nice if there were. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have with Nietzsche is a view according to which God's uh, non-existence is actually a good thing, something in fact to be celebrated. In fact, the English translation of one of Nietzsche's best-known works is called The Gay Science or The Joyful Science, The Joyful Knowledge. And for him, the joyful knowledge just is this knowledge that God is dead. Uh, And of course, what Nietzsche means by that is not that God literally died, but rather that he's never existed at all. So Nietzsche sees this as a liberating fact, something to be happy about, something to celebrate, and I think you see that uh, with the new atheist. I think there's a joy in their perspective in, from, from their point of view, uh, recognizing that God doesn't exist. I think you also have a level of vitriol and anger and, uh, and uh, criticism from the new atheists directed toward people of faith, particularly Christians, that uh, has seldom been seen in the past. And so would, you, would it be your premise that we very much are dealing with uh, the continuing shadow of Nietzsche in, in, in a lot of ways in terms of, of what we see in the public square when it comes to the discussion between atheists and those who hold some type of theism? Yeah, I think so. I think what you, what you see, whether it's self-conscious or not on the part of, uh, of new atheists such as Dawkins or, or such as uh, Harris, uh, what you see is very much a continuation of the spirit of Nietzsche, uh, absolutely, um, on, on a number of fronts. And it's not just the attitude of joyfulness with respect to their belief that God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, – there's a similarity with respect to the way they conduct the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't think Dawkins or Harris or Hitchens or, or even Daniel Dennett are quite as interesting in terms of their writing Mm -hmm. as Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche is brilliant in terms of expressing himself, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they are certainly in keeping with Nietzsche's uh, work in terms of of being very much on the attack, and even at times uh, displaying a level of anger toward people of faith, again, in general, but Christians in particular, um, that I don't think... uh, at least prior to Nietzsche, had had been seen often. 
Yeah. I think that's another key that I mean, Doug's mentioned it a couple of times, but mm-hmm. make it clear and explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, not simply an attack on Christianity or the Christian view of God, but upon religion in general. That's and so right. They've got as strong vitriol for Islam and other religious perspectives as uh, as for as for Christianity, and I think that's the for any number of reasons and has all kinds of huge implications for for conversations in the in the public square about the atheism so and you i take it you would uh, agree with the assessment that what we're dealing with here is a kind of a post nietzschean uh perspective that has these added elements of almost uh, there there's a there's not just a joy i almost sense a confidence about about mm-hmm. the belief uh, that comes through in the right certainly in dawkins writing absolutely in fact one of the things i i was um reading earlier this week uh, an encyclopedia uh, reference online to New Atheism. And one of the things that the author of the article I was reading uh, said, and I think this is exactly right, is something something that characterizes and distinguishes these atheists from previous is the level of confidence mm-hmm. they have in their belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's off the charts, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, and yeah. Dawkins will, depending on the context and depending whether he is performing or he is thinking, depending upon whether he is trying to um, to to motivate people and, and to call attention to himself, or when he is being more nuanced and reflective, he will talk about the the arrogance of claiming atheism is true, mm-hmm. and will identify. I heard, heard him say it several times, once live, uh, that that the most I can claim for myself is that I'm sixth seventh. Of an atheist, of an atheist, I'm agnostic, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm agnostic on this side, and he has it really is some of his strongest rhetoric for people who claim that they're balanced, they're in the middle mm-hmm. between the, the extreme confidence in in God's non-existence or extreme confidence in God's existence, and so I think there's a difference in in the way he performs depending upon the context and what he's trying to accomplish but that's not in any way to deny the the, the extreme confidence with which he performs in public uh, about his views yeah, yeah. Well, and, go ahead well and i was going to say Glenn, following up on that and it's interesting in light of that that when somebody of the stature of antony flew mm. you know comes to to affirm that there is a god Right, that uh, that this man who has been known in professional philosophical circles as the champion of atheism for the last fifty years or so, when that man reverses himself, uh, Dawkins' uh, response is to basically say, "Well, he's gotten senile." Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, you've you've got something of a of a real disconnect between what he says in some con- context and how he responds in mm-hmm. some others. Which is another issue, and because I think there the, the 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 issue for Dawkins is that faith for him is so unreasonable, so unbelievable, so lacking in evidence that he cannot conceive anybody who would who would have an epistemological ground in faith commitment. So that mm-hmm. uh, that that. It's a, there's all kinds of things going on with Dawkins, particularly, and um, um, it, it's represented, I think, of, of the whole group across the board. The well, four horsemen of the. Uh, well, let, let's. That's a good place to start because some people may or may not know some of these names that we're talking about. So let's wa- work through. Uh, I like your image. The four horsemen is kind of a. He brings clouds to mind and that kind of thing. So yeah, um, apparently, it came out of a, a conversation the four of them had. Uh, 
several several years ago. So it's a self a self reference. It's, it seems like it. That, yeah, that's where. And then um, Al Mohler used it in his uh, atheism remix, which probably canonized it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, so let's uh, let, let's go through these four figures and talk about them. And as we talk about them, let's see if we can surface some of the. Uh, emphases that we get mm. out of the the new atheism. Um, I don't know if you want to proceed in any particular order necessarily uh, across the four, or whether you want me to raise them one at a time and and uh, and you comment on them. I'll, I'm I'm comfortable to do either. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, you've mentioned Dawkins. Okay, let's start there with Richard Dawkins, yeah, evolutionary biologist, Oxford. Um, Wrote The Blind Watchmaker back in 86, but probably best known for The God Delusion in 06, where he argues that uh, faith is a virus and it infects everything that it touches. Uh, God is not, no longer – God is not only – uh, non-existent, um, but it's a good thing that he's not, and, and religions um, are are toxic in in this world. His his follow-up book, then, um, The Greatest Show on Earth, is a defense of evolution, which is uh, – th- those two books fit together in that what drives, what drives Dawkins is his conviction that science potentially answers all of the questions, that evolution is the explanation which makes God not not even a, necess- a possible thing. Yeah, I think when I read Dawkins, the thing that strikes me is is that I get a sense that, that we're not just dealing with a scientific worldview, but it's almost as if evolution itself is a worldview lens. Mm-hmm. Fair, um, yeah, fair summary? Yeah. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back. Uh, well, we'll in come fact, back there. Go uh, ahead. if I recall correctly, and I, I think this was in the period around the publication of The Blind Watchmaker, which, of course, was a much earlier volume, but as the title suggests, is making exactly the same point as the mm-hmm. more recent book, mm-hmm. namely that in evolutionary processes you have a sufficient explanation mm-hmm. For, for all there is mm-hmm. in terms of life. But if I remember right, it's in that context that he made the point that uh, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually mm-hmm. satisfied or an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Mm-hmm. That what Darwin provided was the explanation for us, mm-hmm. which had been lacking prior to his work. Mm-hmm. And, that, uh, and that that, I take it from Dawkins' point of view, is what really seals the fate uh, for belief in God. Okay, let's go next to Christopher Hitchens. Um, who wants to comment on, on, on him? Christopher Hitchens is a philosopher. Is he? <laughs> Fancies himself as such. Oh, well, did. yeah, okay, right. Fancies himself as such. Uh, of course, maybe of course you, we got other philosophers in the mix, too. Yeah, so. uh, yeah Daniel Dennett certainly uh, would have a claim uh, – Obviously, a legitimate claim to being a professional philosopher. So that's the third name. So let's let's talk about both of them. Well, before we go there, okay. uh, let, let me make this point because I think this is worth making yeah. on the heels of the comment you made, Glenn. Um, you know, Dawkins' work, Hitchens' work, Harris's work, and I mentioned those three because those three, Sam Harris, we have yet to mention, right, but we right. will. Those three are not uh, uh, professional philosophers by any means. Uh, and yet, many of the issues they're addressing in their works are really, frankly, mm-hmm. quite philosophical in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, a lot of the discussion coming from the three of them uh, that's more philosophical in nature is, uh, from a philosophical point of view, fairly poor. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and we can talk more about that as we get into yeah, some of the more details, for yeah. instance, when we talk about the Odyssey and such. Right. Uh, but that's worth noting. Uh, now, Daniel Dennett is the exception here. Mm-hmm. Dennett is a well-respected and very fine philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say, my comment about um, the other three, I mean, take Dawkins, for instance. He's obviously a very well-respected uh, and uh, well-regarded um, you know, biologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does not a philosopher make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're dealing with issues that go beyond the empirical, um, you know, uh, some some training is helpful, yeah. to put it mildly. Uh, I, I think Dawkins would recognize that he uh, presents himself, at least, as a pretty strong materialist. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there is no other there is no other realm to go to mm-hmm. if you, when you read his material. And he doesn't like the distinction, any distinction, when someone says, you know, science has this limit, and now we're going to hand it off to either theologians or philosophers. He doesn't like to go there. So we we definitely will loop back to that to those ideas. Um, uh, Sam Harris is a name that we've we've mentioned a couple of times now, but we haven't uh, we haven't described who he is. PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA. Okay, and um, really a couple of books uh, that he has written: uh, The End of Faith, and then he followed that up with a letter to a, a letter to a Christian nation recently, The Moral Landscape, where he argues that atheism does have a, a foundation and a basis for morality. Harris might be the most careful, um, non-provocative, um, logical, um, controlled presenter presenter of the of the of the mix. When you watch him, um, he he's he's very effective as a as a debater as a speaker and and he he he, he avoids I mean if you put Hitchens in one end uh, who's out of his way to be provocative, provocative yeah uh, uh, Harris I'd, I'd put on the other end of the continuum he's mm-hmm. he's a lot easier to to listen to but every bit as um, as dismissive and uh, and cruel in his in his uh, dismissal of religion he's God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. He's crisp. I mean, mm, the, you, you pick up the letter of the of Christian Nation, letter to a Christian Nation, and it's amazing in my thinking how much uh, he packs into a tight space as he makes his case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some ways, uh, I see him as, uh, as you do, the, um, 
one of the more effective communicators mm. uh, of the of the cause because of the crispness with which he writes and the in the clarity also mm. is it's crisp and clear in terms of what it is he's trying to say mm. and how he goes about saying it to make the point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, those are the those are the four. Um, let, let's let's first let's build a list first, maybe the best way, and then then we can proceed through. Uh, there are certain issues that consistently come up. Well, let me make one observation before we leave this. It does strike me that three of these writers are deep in the sciences in terms of their orientation, mm-hmm. which brings up the issue that you sometimes see when we walk into these conversations about how. Uh, faith and science are often, and this is true in our culture as well, pitted uh, against one another as as opposites. You can't have a foot in the sciences and a foot in faith. That seemed to, that that's a non sequitur to a lot of people, and they seem to to collide with one another. And certainly, these writers um, push mm-hmm. that element of their description that because they are scientists and deal with evidence and the material world and what they can show, all those kinds of claims. Um, uh, the person of faith is, you know, um, uh, casting their hope on things that they can't show and demonstrate mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And this contrast between science and 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 faith, or science and and metaphysics, almost uh, comes up in, in these conversations. Uh, I think I want to start by addressing that first. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is a, a, a an important. Framing of the entire conversation uh, that we have, um, and I'm not sure who wants to take that uh, first. I'd, I'd love to hear Doug begin <laughs> to unpack a bit the, the metaphysical presuppositions. Well, in, in fact, Errol, it's interesting the way you put it. You, you talked, uh, you mentioned first science versus faith, and then science versus even metaphysics, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't think is uh, is a bad way to put it. Mm-hmm. Although I'm going to put it slightly differently. Okay. It seems to me what they have in common is they are making science metaphysics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that the view right. that that these these folks are holding is a view according to which there isn't anything other than what science uh, can uh, can investigate. And that itself is a massive assumption. Oh, it's massive mm-hmm. assumption. In fact, it's interesting. Not only does uh, a scientific, a rigorous scientific approach to the world not exclude faith, mm-hmm. uh, Isaac Newton, who I think, you know, uh, by all accounts would uh, would count as a legitimate He's scientist. A scientist. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> what what a lot of agree. people may not realize is that uh, Newton was uh, just as, if not more, interested in matters theological as he was uh, matters physical. Uh, and so, you know, the view that you can't be a serious scientist and have faith commitments is uh, is a non-starter. Now, it's interesting because I, I can almost hear Dawkins echoing in my head as you say that, well, he's – Newton was partially a product of his age, and so that that's why he had, well, gives us space but, to, but, to faith. And he was before but, Darwin. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, but – Dawkins better be careful about wielding that sword because uh, if he's not, he's going to end up getting impaled on it himself. Because to the extent to which he wants to write uh, Newton off as a product of his cultural context, uh, why might one not not make the same response to Richard Mm -hmm. and say, well, uh, your views on uh, science and uh, and faith or science and religion are themselves nothing but the product of – 
of an overweening uh, confidence in uh, in science and in kind of a metaphysical uh, naturalism that that undergirds the view of many scientists. You know, it, it's an interesting argument, and I'm I, I don't think I'm going to have opportunity to pull in New Testament studies very often in this conversation, <laughs> but I am going to pull play the card here. Um, Craig Keener's just written a book on miracles in which he's gone through, and the whole gist of his book, it's two volumes, is to document how deeply seated the belief in uh, in the transcendent is ac- across our societies. And his claim is is that it is a particularly Western a segment of a Western view to cut the transcendent out of conversations when it comes to humanity. Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing is, is it, it's basically the form of the argument you just gave to me, that, that Dawkins is so in, the, if I can say it, the Western elitist scientific bubble uh, that, uh, that, that the views of masses of humanity all around the world who live in a variety of different contexts and all affirming some sense of there's something else. Uh, is ignored, and, and it's labeled as superstition when, in fact, it might be evidence uh, of something that, that we internally, as human beings, sense about who we are as creatures. History, soft sciences, are, don't constitute evidence for, for Dawkins and his crowd. That's right. That's so right. It's just dismissed as superstition. There's no evidence. So, I mean, you, you hear him talk about the resurrected Christ. There's no evidence, uh, and so it's it, all. Everything is dismissed except what is um, what is repeatable, and what is um, what what meets his fairly narrow definition. Yeah, it, and that's why I'm saying it's a it's a it's a label. It's a way of of shoving it off to the side as if it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't really matter. Well, let's talk about this. What 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 do you see as the limits of science on the one hand? Might probably might, might be a good way in uh, the limits of science on one hand, and the and why should we think that metaphysics extends in some ways beyond that, or, or that science doesn't cover metaphysics? Well, or at the very least, that there's more to metaphysics than what science investigates and is interested in. Well, first of all, um, uh, philosophers of science, uh, and the point I'm about to make is is uh, is a point well known and and recognized within those circles. Uh, philosophers of science recognize there are fairly significant limits to what science can and can't tell us. There are clearly phenomena in this world that are beyond philosophical investigation. So, for instance, well, morality mm-hmm. is not a, a proper subject of, uh, of investigation. Uh, or how about the laws of logic? Mm-hmm. Um, if science is going to operate in a rational manner, presumably even the, uh, the most uh, – uh, hard-headed, uh, committed scientist is going to grant that they've got to operate by way of the laws of, of logic. But these are not amenable to uh, uh, to scientific investigation. Uh, the beautiful is, uh, you know, aesthetics is an area that's really beyond uh, scientific inquiry. I mean, there are all kinds of areas of human inquiry and human interest that are recognized, uh, as you say, or, or as Keener perhaps says, mm-hmm. uh, and I looking forward to reading that book. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, there are all uh, sorts of areas of human interest that have been recognized all across the globe as being legitimate that are simply outside the scope of, uh, of scientific inquiry. Uh, and for science to dismiss uh, the legitimacy of those areas of interest just simply on the grounds that we don't deal with them mm-hmm. um, strikes one as uh, – as, uh, 
as arrogant to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, really, what seems to me to be operating underneath uh, this kind of imperialistic scientific perspective mm-hmm. is the old philosophy of logical positivism. Mm-hmm. And of course, logical positivists are famous for having put a criterion of meaning on the table. And the criterion of meaning that they put on the table was this, right? Uh, a statement is meaningful only if either it can be investigated by the methods of science or it's true by definition. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with that very criterion of meaning is that it doesn't meet its own uh, criteria, yeah. Yeah, its own standard. <laughs> yeah. So by its own lights, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a view that, surprisingly enough, held great sway in professional philosophical circles for at least two and a half decades, mm-hmm. maybe longer. But it's long since died in philosophical circles for precisely the reason I mentioned. It's self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And philosophers came to see this. But it's, it's a view of meaning that is particularly uh, adaptable to a scientific perspective on the world. And I think you have, in some scientific circles, a commitment to something like that very understanding of meaning still at work, mm-hmm. without, without a realization that, as a matter of fact, that perspective has been undermined fairly fairly decisively. I'm, I'm going to shift on you here slightly yeah. I, I, because I think the conversation we're having is important, but it, it also raises something that I've observed when you raise issues of you can't examine morality scientifically or you can't e- examine religious faith scientifically. Something that I'm seeing happening in some discussions on the science side is the study of, if I can say it this way, the brain and chemical reactions and those kinds of things as a way to try in a – and I'm going to use this characterization, I'm not sure how else to say it, in a way kind of secularize those conversations to, to try and give an explanation. Certain people have, are, are religious because there's a certain combination of the way the chemicals are reacting in them that create these uh, mm-hmm. these ideas and images. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I see going on there is the attempt of science uh, – the attempt to, to layer with a science, put it in quotes, um, uh, things that, that actually aren't just material. Um, and, and, it, and it's almost as if science, or at least an expression of science, I don't want to generalize, an expression of science is, is trying to force its way in uh, to certain territory as a way to try and claim it, uh, and thus, by doing so, try and remove or give the appearance of removing a need for having any other explanation for what's going on. Am, am, am I sensing that going on with some of the science that we see in, the, in these discussions? Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right to, uh, uh, to, to think you're seeing that because I think that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that uh, – you know, there's a real problem for the new atheist here, and, and here I'm, I'm kind of making an aside on your aside. Okay. But there's a real problem that, that the new atheists face, because on the one hand, one of the things that the new atheists are committed to doing, and this is, this is very un-Nietzschean, mm-hmm. is they're committed to, to uh, very vocally maintaining that you can be an atheist and have a commitment to objective morality. Right, They're very committed to that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, by their own lights, if all there is is the material, then really in the end, all our beliefs about, uh, about morality end up being are, are frankly brain states. Mm-hmm. And those brain states are, by their own lights, what they are by way of evolutionary processes. And those processes have selected simply for survivability. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, there's a disconnect here because on the one hand, 
right? We want to maintain an objective morality. On the other hand, our beliefs about morality are nothing but artifacts in our brain that helped us survive. Yes. Right? I mean, there, there's fairly obviously a discontinuity with respect to that. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell us to put that in the cache, okay? <laughs> I want to come back to that because that's really, really an important idea and I don't want to lose it. Uh, and I'm glad you're writing it down because we want to come back to that. But I want to ask Glenn if he wants to weigh in on what we've been talking about here, either in terms of the science of the brain or the metaphysics and science contrast. Uh, one of the clear statements um, that one hears regularly from Dawkins and others is uh, rooted in the uh, enlightenment and the um, the elevation of reason over revelation. And that what I th- what I think I would want to be sure to say is that although our position, believing that there is a God and believing that God has revealed himself to us and believing that God's uh, revelation of his eternal power and divine nature is plain and clear and seen in what he has made, although that view is dismissed out of hand Mm -hmm. and mocked and uh, belittled, that remains the the foundation of our epistemological, uh, and that's the foundation of our epistemology. Mm-hmm. We are people of faith, seeking understanding, and I think there. Are, I think we have to be clear that you can make fun of it, you can dismiss it, you can mock it, you can you can do what, you can say whatever, but but we can't give that up. That mm-hmm. that that's who we are, and what we do, and sometimes it's necessary just to to make that obvious point. Knowing that everybody in this room recognizes that, right? But uh, but to talk about brain states, et cetera, um, it, it identifies a problem with the scientific uh, perspective, uh, but it, it doesn't help or hurt our our cause one way or the other. Because we believe there's a God who's revealed Himself by what He has made. Join us next week for part two of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary: Teach Truth, Love Well. Thank you.